أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وآله الطاهرين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله brothers and sisters um, and welcome to another session of Mizan Life um, we uh, this second uh, week of, of month of the month of Ramadan, uh, we made it to, in our book, in our discussion of Shia Imamiya doctrine, we made it to the discussion about prophethood. Alhamdulillah, we put behind us Tawheed, and uh, now we, we have begun uh, prophethood. Last week we covered three articles, um, uh, the first three articles regarding prophethood. I'm going to go over those very quickly. And uh, then we'll get to today's discussion, inshallah. And welcome to everyone who's coming online. Asalaamu As Alaikum. So last week we talked about, number one, in article 54, we spoke about the reasons for why there is a need for prophets. And so it went like this, that uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He's all-wise. And when He has a purpose in creating us, and not just creating us, but a purpose in giving us an intellect, an aql, and reasoning, then there must be a purpose for that as well. Okay, so before this, we were, um, not before this, but we are animals and mammals at the same time, just like every other animal out there, just like every other tree and plant out there, that is going to grow slowly, and that's the purpose of it is for it to grow and reach its uh, you know, maturity and adulthood. There's that side of you know, creation and the, king, and the animal kingdom and the plants and all of that. And we're part of that as well. But then He's also given us something that He has not endowed other beings, other creatures with. And that is this power of intellect and free will as a result of our intellect. So, there must be a purpose there too. And that's already been discussed maybe. Um, the point that we were trying to make here was that if there is a purpose... And that is our ultimate felicity and our eternal and infinite uh, felicity in the hereafter. Then this potential that we have has to be has, Allah has to give us the tools for it, or the guidance for it, which is a better word to say here, the guidance for that, so that we know how to actualize that potential within us. This is where the need for prophets comes, because either God will speak to us directly and tell us what we need to do. Uh, for us to attain and secure that ultimate felicity. Or if He's not going to speak to us, He has to somehow transmit to us what we're supposed to do, what the do's and don'ts are, if there are any do's and don'ts. You know, brothers and sisters, it's perfectly fine to say, God could have created us and there were no do's and don'ts. He just had to create us. Then yes, He wouldn't need to speak to us. He wouldn't need to um, transmit anything to us of guidance. But if God has a purpose in mind, and that purpose can only be achieved through certain means and certain ways and a path that we have to be on, then He has to provide that path. He has to give us the guidance for that as well. Or else it goes against His wisdom. A wise person who has a purpose in mind has to facilitate that purpose at this, as well. Or else it won't, um, it won't be fulfilled. Okay, so that's the reason for prophethood you can say. Now he also, Ayatollah Subhani in his book also got to, he went into other discussions in this regard. Sometimes, some might say, 
that our aql and our intellect is enough to be able to tell what our felicity is. And he refuted that, Ayatollah Subhani, with different reasons. And that's not something we need to get into now. We're just reviewing what we went through last week. That, you know, when it comes to even mankind and his uh, felicity, uh, we make mistakes, we change our laws, and so on and so forth. Everyone knows that we are under the influence of our personal interests. We are biased beings. No, you cannot find one person out there who will not be biased. And so when we're setting laws sometimes even, uh, we will be under that influence. And then that will affect us and, and, and the way we're able to tell whether or not a law is universally binding or not. The fact that when I came up with that rule, I was under the influence of my own personal interests maybe, my own understanding, my own ignorance, my own biases and so on and so forth. Lots of different reasons why. Relying on the aql alone is not enough to be able to tell and figure out everything of what we need for our ultimate felicity. Yes, granted, there are some things that God has put within our nature to begin with. The Qur'an you know, touches on that. The Qur'an says, فَأَلْهَمَهَا فُجُورَهَا وَتَقْوَاهَا Allah has inspired to every person the good and evil, some good and evil at least, those basics that everyone understands. Everyone understands. Um, ظُلْم, oppressing is bad. Yes, hurting others is bad. Lying is bad. Cheating is bad. Stealing is bad. Everyone understands these things. Someone who has spent their whole life raising a cow only to have it stolen by someone else, everyone understands this is wrong, that's their property. There are these things that we will have, that we understand, but there's a lot more. Why does tawaf have to be seven, the tawaf of the Kaaba has to be seven rounds? Why can't it be eight? Why can't it be six? Why does Salatul Fajr have to be two rak'ah? Can it be four? Can it be ten? I'm feeling good today. Let's do twenty rak'ah Salatul Fajr. Why won't that be accepted? Well, these are things that God has to tell us. Either he tells us directly, or he tells us indirectly through a prophet, and our minds would not be enough to figure this out, figure all, figure all these details out. So that's Article 54, regarding the reason why we need prophets to begin with. Article 55 went into the verses of Quran that tell us about the different objectives that prophet have, prophets have, the different things that they accomplish when they come. Number one was. Um, to solidify the foundations of Tawheed amongst the people. Number two was to make the people familiar with teachings, divine teachings. Number three was to uphold and establish justice in society, in human society. Number four, to judge amongst the people when they have differences. Number five, to leave no excuse for the people so that on the day of judgment no one says, oh, we didn't know. Oh God, if you had sent us a prophet, if you had let us know somehow, that would have been good. We did not know. No, Allah sends the prophets so that no one can have such an excuse on the Day of Judgment. Think about it. If God doesn't send prophets and people on the Day of Judgment tell Him, Oh Allah, if you had sent prophets, we would have listened. That means that God created the whole universe and everything and all the hardship and suffering that all creatures go through in this world. All of that for us only to say on the Day of Judgment, Oh God, if you had sent us a prophet, we would have secured our purpose in life. But since you didn't, we're off the hook. No, 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 no. He's going to make sure no one has an excuse on the Day of Judgment. How is that going to be the case? By sending prophets. And it says on the Day of Judgment uh, that Allah is going to ask the people and He's going to also ask the prophets. 
He's going to line everybody up. He's going to ask the people of what they did. And he's going to also ask the prophets, O prophets, did you transmit what you were to transmit or not? The answer, of course, that they will give is yes, we did. We did our part. So that means the onus is on the people now. Why didn't you accept? Why didn't you act upon it? And uh, there will be no excuse then. Alright, so that's that. Article 55 gives us these. Now, I had a little point here last week I mentioned as well. Is that true that there are four or five things listed here? But the main thing would be that, the, that these prophets teach the people what they need to know to secure their hereafter. And so they don't have any excuse on the Day of Judgment. That seems to be the main goal. The others are also goals, but they're not... I wouldn't see them as, you know, at the same level as this objective that I just mentioned. The prophets came to teach us monotheism and tawheed and to get us in touch with God and let us know what we need to do to attain His satisfaction and secure our afterlife. I think that's the main goal. And as a result, we won't have excuses on the Day of Judgment. All right. So that's Article 55. Article 56 we also talked about. Is that, okay, we have an, God has to, now when I say has to, of course, has to in the sense that if He wants to fulfill the purpose He has of sending, of, of creating us, Allah has to send prophets. Okay, one. Two, we have to listen to them to attain our ultimate felicity. Number three, the, a question comes up. If that's the case, in this world, we know that there are people who got problems, man. They come out with false claims of being prophets. Who's going to get in the way of that? Yeah. Who's going to get in the way of, and how are we going to make sure that we won't have people making false claims of prophethood? That's a good question. There has to be a way where we can be sure that if someone says he's prophet, that he's telling the truth. And that's where we have three methods. Number one is that if a previous prophet mentions that this prophet is to come after me, this person will be coming after me, will be prophet after me. Yeah, Let's say in the original Injil of Isa, Prophet Isa salam. In there it says that yes, there will come someone after someone will come after me, Yati min Ahmad. Someone will come after me by the name of Ahmad. Now, of course, this verse you might not find it anymore in the Bible today. But the claim that the Islam has, that the Quran has, is that this was in the original book. Now there are some who try to find verses in the in the New Testament today, which is made up of the four canonical uh, gospels uh, well, they will try to point out uh, verses there that will say the same thing but th- it's not clear cut brothers and sisters anyway uh, let's not you know let's not go off to- off topic here a pre- a previous prophet mentioning that this is the person after me that's one number two if there are so many clues pointing to the fact that this person is a prophet now like what the way this person has been living all their life, the content of their of their of their call and their message, others who have embraced that person's religion, okay, and and so on and so forth. If all of these things come together, a person can be convinced that this person is a prophet. 
So for example, we've ha- we have the case with, with our imams and we have the same thing going with, other, uh, with, 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 with our Holy Prophet as well. That some people would just embrace the faith. Why? Because of how the demeanor of this Prophet was. What the teachings of this Prophet were, of our Holy Prophet. He would tell people to respect their parents. He would tell people to be good to their neighbors. Things like that. Sometimes that was enough for people to be convinced that he's a prophet. Sometimes it's, it's, it's a combination of all these things. We have to understand it will be subjective for some. So these two are the first two methods, but they're restricted. They're not universal ways that can be used. They're not going to be binding on everybody, objectively binding on everybody. No. Why? Because, as I said, they're subjective. One person will be convinced Another person will not be convinced. One person, some are even uh, bound by time. Like for example, a prophet is going to appoint another prophet after him. What if I wasn't alive when that prophet did it? (laughs) You know, what if just reports came to me and so on and so forth? How can I rely on them? I'm not 100% sure. So these things are, are, are they give, they, they limit these two methods. But then you have the third method, the best method of them all, the one that is used by, maybe you can say all prophets even. And that is that they bring miracles. If someone claims that they are in touch with the divine, and the divine, which is God, understands that there's no way to prove this person, the truthfulness of the claim of this person that's claiming to be prophet, then God understands, if we understand, of course God is going to understand that he has to somehow give some power some permission to this individual who is a prophet to prove to the people that yes, I am in direct connection with the divine. Very simple. That's where miracles come in. And that's where we ended our discussion last week. Okay, um, a lot of people said salam and wa alaikum salam to all of you. And uh, welcome to this session. This is where we are start our, our session today. Article 57. First, before he gets into other details, in this article, which is a very short one, it's just a paragraph long, he just wants to really drive this point home. Ayatollah Subhani wants to drive this point home that there is a logical link between miracle and claim of prophethood and truthfulness of this claim. There is a logical link between them. Let me see if... uh, it would be a good idea to read off of the book, this one here. He says, There's a logical relationship between the performance of miracles and the veracity of the claim to prophethood. For if the one who works miracles is truthful in his claims, the proof of the claim will be confirmed. And on the other hand, were the person lying in his claims, it would not be feasible to presume that God, the all-wise, who wishes right guidance for his servants, would place such miraculous powers at his disposal. He says, people understand this. You can't say that a person will have the powers of a prophet and would have miracles, but God just gave it to him, although he's a liar. It goes against God's wisdom. I think it's very clear. I don't need to even explain this article anymore. That there is a logical link between the two. That's article 57. Now let's move on to article 58. The question arises... There are a lot of people out there who we've heard the stories of, maybe even experienced ourselves firsthand, who can perform extraordinary acts. 
Yeah? And what was the definition of a, of, of a miracle? It's an extraordinary act. Of course, we'll get to the difference between extraordinary acts and miracles. We'll get to the difference between them later. But for now, here the question arises that there are some people who can perform such acts. How? What's the, what, what are these extraordinary acts called? These people don't even claim to be prophets. <laughs> they don't even claim that they're in touch with the divine. But they can do special things. Yeah. So what is, what is up with this? What's the deal here? The answer is that these are referred to as karamat. That's the word that are, that's used. There's a difference between a karama. Karama means like a, let's call it, you know, a special endowment, a special gift given from somebody, from God here. In this case, and in this context, God. There is a difference between a karama and a miracle mu'jiza. Okay? Yes, there are people who have this. The Quran even talks about it. People who weren't prophets. So for example, how Lady Maryam would get, would receive divine sustenance. Uh, the verse says, That whenever, That whenever Prophet Zakaria would enter upon Prophet Maryam, or excuse me, not Prophet, Lady Maryam, not Prophet Maryam. Lady Maryam, in her place of worship, he would find some divine food, divine sustenance there. Where is this from? She would say it's from God. It's from it's from above, yeah. Well, Prophet Lady Maryam is not a prophet, so why is it that she's able to you know do something like this? Well, extraordinary things happen for extraordinary people. Doesn't necessarily mean they're a prophet, okay? So we have if you're a prophet, you have to be able to do miracles and extraordinary acts. But it's not the case that every extraordinary act equals you are a prophet. Okay, It's one way, not the other. This is very important. But now we'll talk about those extraordinary acts of the prophets. They have to have certain um, characteristics as well. It's not just an extraordinary act. There's more to it than that. So it says, كُلَّمَا دَخَلَ عَلَيْهَا زَكَرِيَ الْمِحْرَابِ وَجَدَ عِنْدَهَا رِزْقَ This is Surah Al-Imran, verse 37. Another verse talks about how someone during the time of Prophet Sulaiman was able to do something like super awesome. But he wasn't a prophet. It says, وَقَالَ الَّذِي عِنْدَهُ عِلْمٌ مِنَ الْكِتَابِ أَنَا آتِيكَ بِهِ قَبْلَ يَرْتَدَّ إِلَيْكَ طَرْفُكَ In the story of Bilqais, or some refer to her as Bilqis. Anyway, whatever you want to call her. In the Arabic, in the Quran, or well, it's not the Quran, but it's, uh, it's Bilqais. That's how they usually, that's how I hear them try to pronounce it. So Bilqais, this queen of uh, Sheba, of the land of Sheba or Saba, the Quran calls it, um, she, she had a throne and it was miraculously brought to Prophet Sulaiman in like the blinking of an eye, right? The verse says, there was a person in the presence of Prophet Sulaiman when he asked, who can bring me this throne? There was a al, There was an ifrit of the jinn. The Quran says so. A member of the jinn. What does ifrit mean here? Right now, we don't want to talk about. One of the jinn said, "Oh, Sulaiman, I can bring it to you before you stand up. Yeah, I can bring it to you that quickly." And then there was somebody else there, in the presence of Prophet Sulaiman. He had ilmun min al kitab. He had a special knowledge. Special God-given knowledge, right? 
But he wasn't a prophet. But he had a special knowledge that God had given to him. Yes, if we continue the path of obedience of God, God may, may give us certain things too. That's not why we're obeying God. We're obeying God because He's God and He wants it from us. But sometimes God gives certain things to certain people because they deserve it. This apparently was one of them. So he says, the one, the verse says, وَقَالَ And he said, the one who, who had, عِنْدَهُ had عِلْمٌ مِنَ الْكِتَابِ A knowledge, a knowledge, some knowledge of the book, the special divine book, meaning divine knowledge of God as if. He said, I'll bring it to you before you even blink your eye, Prophet Suleiman. And he did that. So this is an extraordinary act. A throne, think about it, like we bring the oval table from the White House to where we are right now in the blinking of an eye. Isn't that a miracle? Isn't that extraordinary? Yes, it's extraordinary. But theologically, it's not referred to as a miracle. We'll talk about about that later. So Article 58 is acknowledging that yes, there are people out there who are not prophets, but extraordinary acts take place uh, for them. And they're able to perform extraordinary acts. That doesn't mean they're a prophet. So I'm going to repeat what I said. It is not the case that every every person who can perform an extraordinary act is a prophet. But it is the case that every prophet should be able to perform some extraordinary act that is referred to as a miracle. So, what is the difference between extraordinary acts and miracles? Well, a miracle is an extraordinary act, no doubt. But there's more to it than that. And do these conditions that we're about to mention, do they come from hadiths or something? Or from the Qur'an? No, not necessarily. These are conditions that we understand. Well, how do you understand? Answer is, once again, if God is going to want to convince us in a way that we are 100% sure that this person who claims they are a prophet, if He's going to do that, there is no way that everyone can objectively be convinced except if they if this extraordinary act that this prophet performs possesses these characteristics that i'm about to mention right so for example the first one on the list says that unteachability that's the word they use here the fact that this cannot be taught if it's something that is taught and previous people had it who weren't prophets, this shows that it's not a miracle. I think it's very clear. Think about it, brothers and sisters. Would you be convinced if somebody comes to you, right? Someone that's been on America's Got Talent, for example, who can do magical tricks, and does something that you would never in your mind be able to figure out. Yeah? And then they tell you, I'm a prophet of God. But then you know, this person learned these card tricks from someone else, from his friend. Of course he's not a prophet. Why? Because that what they performed, where did it come from? Did it come from God? No, it came from somebody else. <laughs> Very simple. So you see, these things are common sense. You know, These conditions, you don't have to have a hadith or verses of Quran for it. These are things that we can understand, let alone God. So God's not going to send somebody as a prophet, teach them something that other people have taught, uh, or give this person something that other people can teach to each other. No, it has to be something that no one else can teach because they can't do. For example, it says, Moses, as a fully grown man, set out for Egypt. On his way, he received his call to prophethood when a voice called out to him, O Moses, lo, I am God, the Lord of the worlds. Throw down your staff. 
Having done so, the staff suddenly took the form of a serpent, and Moses was terrified. The voice then commanded him to take his hand from his, from his chest. So it says, put your hand in your chest, like in between your, like in your shirt, and then pull it out. It emerged luminous, glowing, so much that it would have dazzled the sight of any onlooker. But then it says, but the Qur'an also mentions the magicians of Solomon's time, who taught mankind magic. Okay? So on one hand, Prophet Musa has something that's taught to him by God, but then there are other things that are taught by even angels sometimes, to the people, and the people are able to teach it to each other maybe. It's talking about how we have this in the story of, uh, of uh, the, the two angels, Harut and Marut. Surah Baqarah verse 102. Here, this thing was learned, this thing was uh, taught to, them, to the people of that time. Although angels were the ones who were teaching it, but it was something that was teachable at the end of the day. We have to understand. So this doesn't make those people prophets. What were they doing? It says, the verse says, they were using this magic to put distance and separation between a husband and a wife. Before you know it, this husband and wife, they're fighting over things. Before you know it, they're separating from each other. Yeah. So that's the difference between magic and sorcery, for example, and miracles. Number one, is that they are not, in unteachability, let's call it. Number two, Number two is, now here the translation says, indisputability. Indisputability. It cannot be disputed. I like to call it, the, I like to say that this, this extraordinary act has to be in a way that it cannot be countered and defeated at all. Okay? Think about it. <laughs> Think about it. A prophet comes, says, I am in touch with God, the most powerful of all beings. Behold my miracle. And he does something, and then others come and are able to neutralize it. <laughs> yeah? They're able to defeat it. So what kind of God are you in touch with whose miracles can get defeated? Of course, of course, you have to not be able to be defeated if you are in touch with God and what you are bringing is from God. So I don't think this one really needs too much explanation. Once again, did a verse of Qur'an tell us this? Did a hadith have to tell us this? No. What, has to, what, what tells us this is our own minds. We understand. And we know God will understand too, because we understand. How can God not understand something that even my, my lowly mind can understand? That if I'm going to be convinced that this person is actually in touch with God that his miracle has to be in a way that won't be defeated by someone that's weaker than God. Duh! No explanation, no more explanation needed in my opinion. Alright. The next uh, condition or characteristic that miracles have to have for them to be miracles is they, they shouldn't be limited to a certain genre. This is also something that we have to understand. If they're limited to a certain genre... What does that mean? That means that this person is an expert in a certain field of extraordinary acts. No more. So, for example, he says, Oh people, hello, I'm a prophet. Come to me. Come and respond to my call. Or like, We're like, okay. 
could you uh, show you show us some miracles? You who are who are claiming that you're in touch with God and God knows for us to believe you, He has to send you with miracles. He says, "Sure, I shall sh- I shall so I shall show you an extraordinary act with this pack of cards." Well, first of all, why are you playing with cards? But anyway, let's just say it's halal. Um, he says, "I will show you a magic trick," and so he shows us a magic trick. Let's not call it a magic trick. Let's call it a miracle trick. We're like, oh wow, look at that. You were able to change this card from one thing to another. It was, I don't know, it was a queen of spades. You turned it to a nine of diamonds. MashaAllah. Alright, that's one miracle. Very good. But you know, we're not too convinced here. We need another miracle too. He says, I shall show you another miracle with... My pack of cards again. And then his third miracle is with a pack of cards again. And his fourth miracle, a pack of cards again. All of a sudden, all this guy can do is, is only card tricks. That's all he can do. If you really are in touch with the divine, if you are sent by God, then you won't be restricted to only one certain uh, category of uh, extraordinary acts. <laughs> there will be more than one genre of extraordinary acts you can perform. Excuse me. So you, and that, that, that's, that's where this condition comes in. The third characteristic of these miracles, the third condition you can say, is the fact that it won't be limited to only one set or one category um, of, of acts. Here it says, the miracles of the prophets are not limited to just one or two types but are of such diversity that they cannot be simplistically classified under a single heading. So then he gives examples of, for example, Prophet Musa. For example, the throwing down of the staff is one thing, and it turning into a serpent that devours all the other ropes and staffs and canes of the magicians of Fir'aun. That's one miracle. And then putting your hand behind your shirt and sticking it to your chest to bring it out for it to shine so luminously that you know people might have to block their eyes from this from the glow of it these two are totally different they come from two different families of of miracles here or for example prophet jesus how he creates from clay a bird blows into it, and all of a sudden this bird is flapping its wings and it comes to life. Then he's able to heal those who are blind, and now they can see. Those who have leprosy can heal their leprosy. He can bring back from the dead. All of these things, these are different things. They will prove to, to the onlooker that this is a, per, that this, uh, is a miracle actually from God and it's not from anyone else and this is a proof that this person is truthful in their claim of being a prophet there's one more thing he says here I would say this is a little different than the previous three characteristics I wouldn't say it's a condition but yeah it, it, can, it can also be taken as that as well let's, let's see what it says it says that look when we look at these prophets or people who would come with the claim of prophethood they would come, but they didn't have, they would come without any expectations. They wouldn't come with any 
uh, lowly abase goals and, uh, and objectives. No, that wasn't the case. They would come with lofty goals. Let me read off of it. It says spirituality, number four. In general, those who perform miracles are to be distinguished from other, others who perform extraordinary feats, such as magicians, both in respect of their aims and in relation to spirituality generally. He says when we look at these people, what do we find? We find that their goals are, one, are different than usual magicians and other people who can do certain things. And we look, see a difference in their spirituality or their, their personalities even. So for example, the guy, he comes on some Got Talent show and he's performing extraordinary acts. Why? He wants to win the prize. Right? You, you win a thousand dollars, you win a hundred thousand, you win a million dollars. Why not? You know? Or when we look at these uh, gurus or Hindu sages and gurus, what do they do after? They're after, you know, pushing their body to the limits so their souls are more powerful than their bodies so they can do extraordinary things. Why? For the sake of doing extraordinary things. The prophets, on the other hand, what are their goals? Their goals, they're not calling anyone to themselves. They're not after personal interests. They're not after any of that. قُلْ لَا أَسْأَلُكُمْ عَلَيْهِ All they would say was, we're not asking for anything in return. We're just doing what God told us to do. And we want you to be on the right path. So that's also a sign for a person who is performing an extraordinary act, that it's a miracle. The fact that when we just look at who they are, what their goals are, what are they calling to exactly. Okay? One thing that is not mentioned here, and I'm surprised not, it's not mentioned here, and yes, sister says these are referred to as charlatans. Yes, that's what they are. Um, one thing that's not mentioned here, I'm surprised it's not mentioned here. Maybe he feels that it was mentioned in previous in the previous article when we were talking about the difference between karama and mu'jiza, and uh, between these two. But it would have been good, I think, if he had listed it as one of those things that sets a miracle apart from extraordinary acts, is the fact that the person who brings it, that, or performs that act, has to have, has to have the claim of prophethood. Sometimes, there will be certain individuals who will do something that is really, is divine. Like you would not have been able to do it if you didn't have a divine connection. Yet, it doesn't make them a prophet. Why? Because they themselves don't have the claim that they're a prophet. This is so important. And I know it might have been kind of implied in article 57, or 58, excuse me. But I don't think implication is enough here. I think he should have listed it in Article 59 next to the rest of those things he listed. Look, when Lady Maryam, she is receiving, extraordinary things are happening for her and she herself is saying that, telling Prophet Zakaria that look, these are from God, straight up. Or when Prophet Isa does what he does, excuse me, not Prophet Isa, um, who was it? In Prophet Suleiman's time, when that person told Prophet Suleiman, I can bring the throne of Bilqais in the blinking of an eye, or less than the blinking of an eye. In these situations, these people are doing what they're doing because they have a divine connection with the heavens and God. So what they're doing, Ayatollah Subhani, 
what they're doing is not teachable, one. Two, what they're doing cannot be countered. Number three, I mean, it's not, it's, they, can, they probably can perform other things. It's not limited to that genre, maybe. The person who might be able to bring the throne of Bilqais is because that's the thing that Prophet Sulaiman was asking for. If Prophet Sulaiman had asked for something else, that person might have done that too, you know? These things, and then four, number four, they're not asking for anything in return. Lady Maryam, when she tells Prophet Zakaria that this is from God, she's not saying it so that she can, you know, gain something worldly out of it. Or when the person in Prophet Sulaiman's time was able to bring that um, um, throne, he's not asking for anything in return or gaining any like spotlight or anything. No, that's not the case. So. Does that mean that they're a prophet now? Because Ayatollah Subhani, these are the ones you listed in Article 59, and they all apply to these individuals. It's not teachable, it's not limited, they don't have any bad intentions, they can't be countered. No, they're not prophets still. Why? Which condition was not met? The condition of them actually having the claim of being prophet. Very simple. These people, none of them had the claim of being prophet. So, I think one more of those things that should be listed here, even if it might have been implied in previous articles, is the fact that this person has the claim of prophethood. Alright, if they don't have the claim, even if all the other conditions are met, they're not prophets still. Yeah. Sister says, am I referring to Asif Barkhia? Uh, I think that's what his name was, the one who was able to bring the throne of Bilqais in the blinking of an eye or less. I think that's what his name was, yeah. Alright, let's go on. But the Quran doesn't say his name. We might have that in hadiths. One more thing I want to mention here, I forgot to mention, regarding the condition of it being limited to a certain genre, these miracles. One more thing I wanted to mention was this, that look, the prophets, if it takes that much to convince the people, they will bring different miracles, okay? But sometimes, man, you don't need to bring more than one miracle. One miracle does the job, and people are looking for an excuse. So, for example, for example, the, the camel of Salih, salam, Prophet Salih, splits a mountain for God's sake. And a camel comes up from the heart of the mountain. Are you kidding me? Like when it comes to these things, people can't, they can't ask for more. Right? You can only ask for more if that one miracle wasn't convincing enough. And God knows if you're just looking for excuses or if you actually need more to be convinced. Okay? Now, they would come to our Holy Prophet. Yeah, a few weeks ago, or a few days ago, we covered this in our tafsir circles that we're doing in Moment Center. Um, they would come to our Holy Prophet, the Qur'an says. They would come to him, and they would ask him for miracles. What do they ask for? They say, we ask for a qurbani, nar, that, O Prophet, you have to make a sacrifice, right, slaughter an animal, that fire eats up. This is our miracle. 
This is the only miracle us as Bani Israel can accept. Look man, even if before this was a miracle that previous prophets were performing, you know that this is prophet now. You know that this is a prophet. You're asking for this as an excuse. You're just buying more time. The Quran actually says this. It says that if this was a miracle actually, then why is it that previous prophets who did this miracle and other miracles, you still killed them? <laughs> it's interesting. So they're looking for excuses. So although this, this miracle, sh this third condition that Ayatollah Subhani here has, that says, you know, it shouldn't be limited to one genre, sometimes God is not going to give more miracles because He knows you all are convinced now. Because he knows that this one miracle or these two miracles was enough for you to believe, right? Let's say someone who is dead is brought back to life. I don't know about you guys, but that's pretty convincing to me. A person that I know is dead, okay? So anyway, that's one thing I had to add here. <clears throat> but yeah, if that is not enough, if one miracle is not enough, and they're asking for something else, the prophets will show other things too. And uh, we even have that with our holy prophet. Our holy prophet, other than the Qur'an, there are reports of other miracles he performed for certain individuals um, who asked for it. Yeah, But still, they wouldn't believe either, which is, which is pretty crazy. I don't know how people were willing to just go to hellfire as a result of not embracing a faith that they knew had been convinced is the truth. Alright, let's move on. Article number 60. Article number 60 now is speaking about how revelation in particular. So we're done with miracles now. That was everything he wanted to talk about regarding miracles. He's now moving on to revelation. These prophets that are in touch with quote-unquote God, right? How are they in touch with God? It is through a means called and referred to as revelation and wahi. Wahi. Now, of course, wahi means a subtle communication, right? It doesn't always refer to in the Quran as, um, um, what's it called? Revelation of prophets. No. Sometimes it means inspiration. Anyway, he might get to that later. I don't know. So for now, we're talking about revelation that the prophets possessed. Okay, this revelation, <clears throat> he says that, look, this is one of those things that the Qur'an refers to as ghayb and the unseen. In other words, we won't ever be able to figure it out. We have to understand and acknowledge this. Right? And then he goes off a little bit on these people who think that they can put everything under the microscope and can understand everything with their intellect. He says, look, no, that's not the case. Wahi, which is the most important way these prophets have a connection to the, uh, to the divine, it is something that is, has nothing to do with our instincts, has nothing to do with our intellects. It is a special cognition that God has given to His prophets. End of story. نَزَلَ بِهُ الرُّوحُ الْأَمِينَ عَلَىٰ قَلْبِكَ Surah Shu'ara That this is something, O Prophet of God, this is something that the Ruh Al-Ameen has revealed to your heart through by God, okay? Straight up. So it's not something that we can understand 
We just have to believe in it. Very simple. That these prophets had this. Why? Because the Quran tells us. Once I know that a, pro- a person is a prophet, yes, after that, if that prophet tells me that, look, we are in touch with God through something called wahi and revelation, then we accept it from them, right? Article number 61 talks about how some people have explained uh, revelation and prophethood in a certain way. And we have to be careful not to see prophethood and revelation as such. He gives uh, two examples, but there might be more. Some of these uh, soci- sociologists also, they have some interesting, uh, some interesting theories about prophets. To the extent, I don't know who it was. Was it Freud or was it somebody else? You tell me. Um, that says that you know some of these prophets they actually are able to like say certain things and have certain certain knowledge and understanding just as a result of all of the pressure they put themselves under under regarding uh, what's the word libido or I don't know if that's how you uh, pronounce it and lust like they they are so under they are under so much pressure but they yet they they contain it and they fight it as a result boom all of a sudden yeah what happens is that they reach a point where they're talking just philosophy and some beautiful stuff you know that kind of thing i don't know if anyone can google that for me was it freud who said that or others i don't know um anyway uh i don't know was freud a sociologist or a psychologist what is, i don't know what he was i think he was a sociologist from what i remember anyway anyway he brings two here. He says, there are some who say that prophets were geniuses. That's the thing. And so they would sit down. They would reflect. They might have even cut themselves off from society for a while, you know. And reflected and thought hard. And then they come up with certain teachings. They come to the conclusion that if we live our lives in a certain way, and by a certain set of rules, then we will all get along, for example. And the world will be a utopia without any problems and, and so on. Yeah? That, that, and, and, and we refer to these people now, these geniuses, as prophets. Right? That's one theory, he says, that some people have regarding prophets. Another thing that we have here is that, or an answer that he gives here, let's answer it before we move on, is that... This, what these people say goes against what these prophets would say themselves. Let's, let me read off of it actually. Article 61. An important problem for this perspective, he says, is that it directly contradicts what the prophets of gods themselves actually say. For they have always declared that what they had brought to mankind was nothing but divine revelation. Thus, a necessary corollary of the empirical explanation of revelation is that all prophets are liars. <laughs> it's funny. He's right. Think about it. This individual who is a genius has to sit down, reflect, come up with a way of life and teachings that are coherent, of course, and don't contradict each other so they can, they can call it an actual religion. Right? And then give this to the people and deliver it to the people. That's religion and that's prophethood, that's revelation. 
This means, if you're going to say that all of these prophets were geniuses who sat down and thought to themselves, you have to say that all of these prophets were also liars. Or a good number of them are liars. Why? Because one of their teachings has been, with majority if not all of these people who are prophets, has been that, look, this is something that I'm not saying for myself. I'm saying it because it's God's command. These are God's teachings to us. This is His religion for us. Yeah, This means that most of them, if not all of them, were liars. He's right. So that's number one. Another uh, exposition, another explanation here would be that, no, they're not geniuses who are lying. Although the previous theory never said they were liars, but that is what they're saying is necessitates that they are liars. <laughs> no, this one says that these, pe these people were righteous individuals who had very strong faith and they would worship God a lot. As a result of that, certain realities, they dawn upon th th these realities and understandings. They dawn upon them. They all of a sudden have an understanding of haqiqah and truth that others don't have. As a result of what? Not as a result of just reflection, like the previous theory. No, no, no. As a result of lots of worship and strong faith. This person, as a result, now will enjoy some of reality, and reality will dawn on him. He thinks that this is coming from God. Little does he or she know that this is coming from within them. Yeah, good for them. <laughs> So, not that these people are liars or anything. But now let's see what Ayatollah Subhani says in, in, in response to this. He says, The adherents of this view claim that they do not doubt the sincerity of the Prophets, and they are certain that the Prophets really have witnessed these truths as a result of their spiritual discipline. But they will dispute the source of these truths. So the previous theory said the source is the mind. Here, whilst the prophets claim that these truths are cast unto them from, with, from outside, from God, from an objective dimension in the unseen world, the proponents of this argument hold that the source of these truths is actually exclusively within the souls and the selves of the prophets themselves. They think God gave them something, they are mistakenly telling us that um, this is from God, while it's not from God. That's the problem. Brothers and sisters, I was kind of surprised here. Ayatollah Subhani doesn't give an answer to this. He does bring a verse or two from the Qur'an. Yeah? For example, he says, مَا كَذَبَ الْفُؤَادُ مَا رَأَى That the, the verse says that when the Prophet you know, saw certain things, no, he was not lied to. The heart falsified not what it saw. Yeah. So in other words, the prophet who is seeing something is actually seeing the reality. Alright. That his sight never swerved, nor did it err. Like it didn't, wasn't, it wasn't an error or something. These types of things. But that, uh, if you ask me guys, I don't know. 
I don't know if that's a, like an answer. I like the answer he gave for the first theory. The answer here for the second theory, I don't, I can't find it. It says that this, all he says is, let me read it to you. This viewpoint is not something new. It is just an expression of one of the ideas held about revelation in the pre-Islamic period of Jahiliyyah even. He's saying that, look, this, this theory is the same as what people of Jahiliyyah and the times of ignorance would tell the Prophet. An expression clothed in modern garb. The wording is different, but the argument is the same, he's saying. And then he explains it more. He says, The import of this perspective is that revelation is the outcome of the meditative reflections of the prophets, their intense introspection, the frequency of their worship, their modes of contemplation upon God, their continuous, continuous meditation on ways of reforming humanity. Certain truths are suddenly perceived and embodied forms before them, truths which they believe had been bestowed upon them from the unseen. That's all. He's just explaining the theory, but an answer is not given here. But I will say this, that there are answers to this as well, just like the previous. Maybe he doesn't give an answer because he says, look, this is something that was said during the Prophet's time. The same answers that were given during the Prophet's time are applicable here. Now what were those? He doesn't, he doesn't really elaborate on that too much. He just leaves it at that. He brings those couple of verses that I said. That, and that's about it really. You know, that the Prophet was not wrong in what he saw. What he saw was reality and things like that. Uh, what did he see? The angel, the actual angel that came down on him. In other words, he says, The Prophet truly beheld the angel of revelation both with his outward and his inward perception. Don't think that it was something that he just perceived from within. No, it's something that happened from outside as well. That's all he says here. But yeah, more detailed books have addressed these issues and have, have, have refuted them. And there, is, there are answers to them. Okay, so with that, we are done with uh, this chapter of prophethood, which has to do with revelation. After this, a very important topic comes up that we're going to leave for next week. And it looks pretty detailed. I'm just scrolling down the book right now. And I see that there's a lot of discussion here. Let's see how, how detailed he gets actually. But uh, we'll talk about that next week. The infallibility of the prophets. right? If you believe that a prophet can prove his prophethood only through miracles, which I said, which apparently that is the case. So he has a direct relationship with God and all of that. But let's just say he makes mistakes in actually transmitting that, that which he gets from God to the people, then we're still going to be at square one. Think about it. He, God sends a prophet with a divine lofty message, with guidance for us to secure our hereafter. And the prophet receives it and he is, shows us miracles to prove that he's prophet. But then when the time comes for him to actually teach us what he has to, he does it in a wrong fashion. He, he, he gets it wrong. Right? Oh people, when you pray Fajr, pray it three rak'ah. Or that's a mistake. So there has to be some form of protection here. Some guarantee that this prophet knows what he's talking about once he's received this revelation. This is referred to as infallibility. And infallibility has different, uh, different aspects and dimensions to it. One aspect has to do with 
receiving properly. One aspect has to do with delivering properly. One aspect of infallibility has to do with this prophet. Does he have to live by those teachings himself necessarily or not? Or can he sometimes slip too? That's also one aspect of infallibility. And of course, us, uh, the Shia school of thought, extends this infallibility to after the Holy Prophet of Islam as well, to the Imams. So we have to remember that as well. So our, when we talk about infallibility, ours will also extend to them as well. All of this, inshallah, to be covered, or at least try to be covered in the following weeks, inshallah ta'ala. Once again, it's the holy month of Ramadan. Inshallah, you keep all of us in your du'as. Thank you for pa- tuning in and patiently listening on a, day, on a day where we're probably all fasting. I thank you for uh, all of that. Mashallah, today's attendance was very good, so I thank you for that. And once again, I've said this before and I'll say it again. Those of you who feel you have friends, siblings, relatives out there who might need these discussions, hear them. We've marketed as much as we could. You can get the word out more and let them know that these discussions are happening. This is an interactive session. You guys are pretty quiet these days. I'm, I'm going to just assume that it's because you're fasting. But yes, questions can be asked while the Facebook Live is going on and they will be addressed definitely. Tomorrow, once again, Sheikh Mahdi is going to have his session on the Tafsir of Surah Yasin. Those of you who are interested, inshallah, tune into that as well. Thank you very much. Keep us in your du'as. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.